Welcome, PhDivas. You're listening to the PhDiva podcast, a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Liz, one of the co-hosts. Zine is sleeping somewhere, probably very happily. Today, you're going to be listening to a pre-recorded track that Zine and I had with our own PhDiva, Dr. Shay Tova. She's a hip-hop scholar, and we had an amazing conversation. We hope you enjoy, and as always, please follow us for more information on our Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitter under the hashtag PhDivas Podcast. See you next week. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited. I wanted to ask you first, what do you prefer to go by? You so know, I can call you Shay, but... but Shay is fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm still getting used to, that's one of the things, I'm still getting used to being Dr. Dent. Sometimes I forget that they're talking uh... to me. <laughs> is this weird or is it normal? I think that's normal. What do you totally, think? Totally. So? I think that we're, I feel like maybe it's a little bit more normal for Liz than it is for me, but I don't really have the case to go around very formally with a doctor in front of my name. Uh, yes, I too was there, but Shay is That's perfectly awesome. fine. Okay. One thing I did want to point out, so okay. is Shay your original English PhD friends? Like the... Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about that actually, because you were a few years older than me. I think, mm-hmm. like, when did you graduate? Oh, 2002. Okay, so I graduated 2005, and then even then, I left for the math yes. and science school. So I want to say that when I was a freshman, you were a senior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Or you either senior or junior. Um, yeah, I was a senior. Okay. Yeah, I was a senior, yeah. Okay, so I didn't know that you were – I didn't know that you were interested in English. I didn't know, like, what you did after that, and so – in a way, yes, you are my first English PhD friend, but also I didn't know. And so I'd also like to talk about that a little bit, you know, like what your academic journey was. Well, and I can honestly say I didn't know I was going to be an English PhD either. Um, really? When I left, <laughs> right. When I left Crystal Springs High School, I was supposed to go to Mississippi Valley and be in mm-hmm. the band. And I had this weird, I'm going to be a band director phase. I went That's not weird. Cool. That's very normal for the South, I think. I, yes. <laughs> so, and that just didn't happen. I ended up going to Tupelo College at the very last minute. And once I got there, I was convinced that I was going to be the next Perry Mason and Matlock. I was going to law school oh. and <laughs> it was going to be great. And it wasn't until my junior year, I did an internship with the McNair program at University mm-hmm. of Mississippi and spent an entire summer doing research on Lorraine oh, Hansberry. Nice. And I didn't know anything about grad school. And we had to do these courses with GRE prep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just really opened my eyes that there's a life outside of just going to college, getting a degree, and then, you know, going maybe to teach. Because I had no plans of teaching anyone at that point, <laughs> <laughs> like, at all. You but after, after going to that anyone. program, no, really, teaching was the very last thing that I would have imagined that I was doing. And then I went to that program during the summer and spent six weeks researching and learning about grad school and underrepresented groups and minorities and what it means to be first generation, mm-hmm. low income, going into these spaces. Mm-hmm. 
And I was convinced that summer that I was going to get a master's degree in English and be the first PhD in the family and the rest. Yes, that's how I landed here. (laughs) Wow. That is so amazing. I also was in McNair. So Mm. I just can't believe that we had very similar paths and I just and are only reconnecting now that we're doctors. Right. It's kind of poetic, <laughs> really. Um, I was wondering, do you also want to explain what the MNIR program is? Because since it's a U.S.-only institution, some of our mm-hmm. listeners are international and may not know what it is. Okay. Um, so Ronald E. McNair program is a TRIO program, mm-hmm. um, government-funded, and they named it after... Um, an astronaut, Ronald E. McNair, mm-hmm. who unfortunately died on the Challenger oh. explosion. Mm-hmm. And they set aside this money to really promote underrepresented groups, minorities, um, to get a terminal degree, PhD. They really focus on that. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very helpful. Uh, TRIO has other programs. I, I couldn't get into Upward Bound, but I ended up being a tutor yeah. for Upward Bound. <laughs> Um, and McNair, and then things like SREB, which, mm-hmm. again, later I was also part of. And so that McNair experience led to me knowing about grad school and then the GRE prep and presenting papers at conferences mm-hmm. all over the United mm-hmm. States. And so it's just a really good resource to get minority representation mm-hmm. in academia. Right. And so I'll, I'll piggyback and add a few things. The TRIO program, I forget what that acronym stands for, but it does consist of a family of pipeline programs to get um, three target groups, first generation students, underrepresented minorities, which can be yeah, underrepresented minorities, mm-hmm. and low income. And, mm-hmm. and as a side note, that's interesting to note because in a place like Mississippi, they, there might be a lot of black people in these groups. But mm-hmm. um, when we were in Ithaca, Upper Bound was filled with white people because low income, wow. first gen. Yeah. I mean, who lives in upstate New York? White people. And so, and yeah, and there are tons of, there are upward program, upward bound programs around Cornell. And so they all have um, the programs focus on different groups. And so Upward Bound is a program for high school students to bridge into um, mm-hmm. college. And then they may have mm-hmm. some programs where middle school students bridge into high school. McNair was one of those programs that bridged um, college students into getting, the, again, those terminal degrees. Cornell was recently awarded a McNair program in 2014. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, this is interesting for me since uh, a recent interview we did with Brianda from Fly Science was precisely that she had never even thought of graduate school because at the institution she was at, there was no access to seeing anyone that looked like herself as a possible, there as a possible route. And there's a lack of mentorship and well, our listeners will be able to get to hear these episodes soon. So hopefully people get to enjoy that continuity. Yeah. So Shay, I'm curious, um, what did you think? I mean, going, Zion was talking about representation. Did you think there was any representation in Crystal Springs or at high school at that point? Um, I had never seen a, a doctor that was like a book doctor, <laughs> as I like to call myself. And so, like you know, that. of course, we, we had the legendary, you know, instructors, you know, Ms. Viola Chrysler, yes. um, 
Miss Conley mm-hmm. and in junior high, Mrs. Hampton. And these are, you know, rigorous. I think Miss Chris um, is still English there. Courses. I mean, is she, did she retire? I, I have not been there. I'm not even sure. I haven't been back in so long. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the, I guess, me looking up to, like, wondering if I was going to major in English was remembering that I had such great English teachers growing up. And I remember a conversation I had with Miss Chrysler, which was like ninth grade, mm-hmm. and she was going off on this discussion about great expectations. <gasps> so if you've come through Crystal Springs High School, <laughs> you know that Miss Crystal was very serious about Pip and Estella and having these conversations oh my God. about That's great like expectations. That's like my grandpa he loves great expectations. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> I mean, it was it was almost scary like going through that class. No, but I remember later remembering that if it were not for the Miss Chryslers and the Miss Hamptons and the Miss Conleys, I wouldn't be the kind of English teacher mm-hmm. uh, that I am. And I was like, maybe I can be that for someone. And yeah. so that's kind of how I made my way into I'm going to teach. Wow. Maybe English literature. But yeah, definitely yeah. looking back to those people I saw in the high school. And then after we graduated, how many of those people weren't there anymore? And noting there is a huge gap and wondering who's going to go back and teach. Gap. It wasn't going to be me. But <laughs> just, well, just be No, I understand. I we can talk back. about that, too. But remember how Miss Chrysler, Mrs. Chrysler used to always have. Um, so, Zion, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry because we're going back down. Memory no, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine with, like, coming but off of the journey. Let me tell you about Mrs. Chrysler. Let me tell you about Miss Viella Chrysler. Okay. So, she had been teaching for so long that she, I think she was one of the only teachers who really had a way of reprimanding students because she actually literally knew your mama and your daddy. <laughs> and she knew their mom and daddy because she taught them all. Oh, wow. So she could look at you and go, you're so-and-so's son or daughter. And you just knew not to, like, no one really truly messed with her. Right. Some of them started to, but you just didn't. And then she just loved books and she loved reading. She just kind of had like this elegant flair about her. And she would make nicknames for people. Like she called me Beth. Beth. Just Beth. Beth. From Little Woman? Did you read Beth? Like what? Like a reference to Little Woman? <laughs> no, no, not okay. a reference. She's like, I'm going to call you Beth. And she talked. It was like she had her own cadence. There's never a rush. Or if there was a rush, mm-hmm. it was like intentional. Like she was trying to build energy. Mm-hmm. Or she was like, I'm... Well, today, (laughs) I will put that pause there. And she would just talk, and it was just, yeah. She gave me, I remember there was this list of, like, books that high school students should read, like a list of 100 books or something. And it wasn't required, but when she gave me that list, I thought, okay, if I think I'm as good as any other person in in this nation, then I need to read these Mm -hmm. books. And I remember, like, reading those classic books, and if it weren't for her, or Mr. Poole was also influential for me because, and this is going to sound stupid, uh, but Mr. Poole was one of the first people to actually reinforce punctuation and grammar for me. Like he brought in one of these books and just learning, just going back through the basics. And I just remembered how grateful I was that he'd actually did that because when I started going into the math and science school and actually writing essays, I learned things that I think I either had never learned before in my life or had forgotten and no one ever 
like really brush me up on grammar <laughs> and punctuation. Yeah. Do you know what I? I don't know. I, you know, I didn't take, I didn't take Mr. Poole for a course. I think I had Mr. Etheridge. Etheridge. That may have been before your time. Yeah. He may have left by then. Maybe. But yeah, I just sometimes I think about like who's is who's there to scare the people into reading all of the classics. Yeah. Now. Charles Dickens, man. And Edgar Allan Poe. She's also loved Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> I can't yes. believe I remember all this. this I remember is one day. Yeah, I'll never forget the Antigone Ooh, lecture nice. that happened in the middle. We weren't even reading it, but she just, somebody said something and she just went on this extended explanation of Antigone. Mm-hmm. I never went to read it and she <laughs> told me I had to. I wasn't in her class anymore. But yeah. She was just an elegant lady. I think her husband passed away very early on, and she raised three children. Um, I think she, I don't remember, but she never remarried, and she just she taught for at least 30, 40 years. So she mm-hmm. was a real true staple of the family. community and of the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one day somebody will look back and say, you remember that Dr. Dent? Mm-hmm. She was really hard, but I do miss that. Yeah. So if there was a book that people were going to remember, if someone's going to go, oh, Dr. Dent always made us read this, what would it be? I'm pretty sure it's going to be Sister Soldier's The Coldest Winter <laughs> Ever because I can't let the book go. Who is this bio and what's it, what's, it, what's it about? It's Sister Soldier, and I use it in my projects where I talk about the uh, creation of hip-hop literature and this debate between yes. high art and low art and street lit and what's real fiction and or real literature and what's not real literature and I just remember reading that book outside of class in the Omar Tyree Fly Girl and we were just reading all kinds of things nothing that Miss Chrysler and, and anybody else assigned but I've included that book now in every um, African-American lit course I've um, taught. I've put it in a women on display course um, where we talked a little bit about body politics and feminism. So I think that is one text that I'm always going to include. Um, it's just so much. And the language is so raunchy <laughs> and students are okay, always this surprised by? that they can talk about it. So, oh, so. that's her name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, I'm so lost. It's okay, Liz. <laughs> That's Zine. Actually, I want to ask you, because Zine, you also have a PhD in English. Yes. <laughs> so when people look back and they go, oh, Dr. Yao always asks us to read this one book, what would it be? Um, in my teaching? Yeah. Um, oh, God. Now this is being pointed at me. I mean, is I can't... name of a book? I, I, I don't think at the moment, I really love playing with all the different texts I assign, like the primary texts. Uh, so like the graphic novels, novels and whatever, but there are certain like um, the uh, short theoretical essays that I love assigning through all my classes as a type of continuity. Like I always love teaching Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman uh, to talk about intersectionality because mm-hmm. I think it's worked in like all my classes to talk about identity and language. Uh, a couple other essays I've signed across multiple classes uh, because I think that they end up being a fantastic critical frameworks, regardless of what text we're using, include like um, a selection from Franz Fanon's uh, Black Skin, White Masks. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
this Marxist critic Louis Althusser on ideology and the ideological state apparatuses, a little bit of Judith Butler talking about um, gender performativity. And even though these are quite challenging works often, um, I find that there's the, the way that they speak to so like to so many different texts, regardless of what I assign, I think that they're so incredibly generative that students always respond to them, even though they're quite challenging. Oh, and I'll also add that like I've gotten a lot of mileage out of assigning Chimamanda Adichie's TED talk, The Danger of a Single of the Single Story. Hmm. I have a few for TED Talks on my list of things to read now that I'm done with the dissertation. Does anybody else have that list of books that you were trying to oh, read yes. instead of, oh, yes, of course. the writing part? Yeah, so that's on my list. Mm. I just finished Americana like two months ago, and so I think I want to incorporate that into the course. I think it would be fantastic, although it's quite long, so it would be, I guess, interesting to see how you structure it's it. It's so long. Yeah. Have you read her fantastic piece for The New Yorker post-Trump election? Not yet. Oh, okay. It is on that list. I am taking a bit of, I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. the election, or I don't want to mm-hmm. think about the election for too many hours <sighs> of the day. Um, I find myself getting yes. angry at articles every once in a while, but I did bookmark It's incredibly it. beautiful and well-written. Um, and it's, it's pretty short also, if that's a, a selling point to our listeners. But she's incredibly eloquent. So how do you guys Mm -hmm. find time to read things? (laughs) I was going to say read and teach, but um, you guys are so well read. And I I do understand that's also part of the the research that you do as well. But I'm just always fascinated Mm -hmm. by that because these are like a lot of books to digest. There, you know... I found one of the problems with having, you know, a project to write and finish is that I kept finding things I wanted to read that had nothing to do with the reading that I was supposed to be doing for the writing. But um, most times when I'm not teaching, which is hardly ever, um, I usually have at least two or three books that I'm reading at the same time, which is a horrible habit. Um, But I try to read when school is not in session. Um, some of those books on that list of things that I really want to read. Like right now I'm trying to start reading um, Lovia Jai's mm-hmm. I'm Judging You book. Um, so that's like my next thing to read, which doesn't always have to be mm-hmm. academic for me. I just always try to find a way to read something. Mm-hmm. I'd also Zion, add that for you? me, like I sometimes try to justify it by being like, oh, these side things could be useful later on. And I think that like, that's, I think, one of the beauties and frustrations of our work and our research is that, like, it is so far-ranging and, like, so many things can be generative and you don't know what's going to be the thing that will spark the next project. So, in a way, like, you're encouraged to read as much as possible, but at the same time, like, for your own sake, you have to stop at some point. But I can say, like, some of the current projects mm-hmm. I'm working on post-dissertation were, like, seeds of ideas that I've had, like, even coming up in conversation with you, Liz, and that, and, like, but they've... Like it's not hasn't been a linear process of like making it into a useful thing, like but it's just been like a spark of interest that may could lead to something else, but not necessarily. Yes, I have a very extensive extensive note function on my <laughs> cell phone where I have hey that looks like a good idea. Um, put a star here for later, so I have a file. So you're kind of like a phone. rapper. Rappers are always like, you know, wait, no, Drake has his line, like, you know, yeah. if I lose my phone, that person's going to be, like, a million. 
Of course, that was when he first came out before, you know, the recent allegedness of him not even writing his own lyrics. But that's another story. Um, oh, that's funny. I, You know, I would like to think in a former life, maybe I was a rapper. Petty Javon. Um, I'm certainly name. quite fond of hip hop. <laughs> ha, I like that. <laughs> So Shay, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about your project? So you said it had a little bit had to do with like hip hop on literature or a high and low culture. Uh, I'd love to know, like, so what time period you're working on, what text you're working on? Yes. So my idea has always been, I love African American literature. That's my mm-hmm. broad category. But I recognized very early that in the courses I took, whether it was undergrad or grad school, we would only get to a certain point sometimes we were lucky if we got to Toni Morrison and so I was very interested in more contemporary texts particularly the ones that I would read outside of class like the Omar Tyrese and the Sister Soldiers so um, my focus is always on those contemporary texts that we sometimes disregard as not being real literature or we'll call them street fiction or urban, there's always an adjective before we get to the literature. And then I would notice they'd be separated in the stores, Um, particularly in Walmart. Mm -hmm. I was walking through one day and it was like, here are the best sellers and here's the (sighs) African-American fiction over here. And that really bothered me one day. And so I picked up, that was when I picked up Sister Soldier's book for the first time. And then once I started reading those, I would say, you know, this is, this story could have been anyone Mm -hmm. in Crystal Springs. Um, it could have been anyone that we saw on the news. And so those more current stories that kind of reflect, here's what's happening outside when we walk out the door in certain neighborhoods, I was drawn to seeing those narratives in text. And then I was trying to figure out, well, why aren't we reading these things? Um, I know I've read it. All of my friends have read these books. Why don't we read mm-hmm. them inside the classroom when we're talking about the ways in which these characters do these things or these social movements, but we see them in other ways in more contemporary texts, but they don't get the same kinds of attention. So I do a lot of work or I plan to do more work with um, like Sister Soldier. Um, I've done work with Polis Whenever, uh, the sequel Porsche, uh, Deeper Love Inside. I'm more interested in getting into the Midnight series, which is going into prison lit, mm-hmm. which is not really my thing, but I'm, I'm interested. Um, I also want to do more work with African authors. So again, Chimamanda is on my list of, I need to read more um, about those. And just um, Tiari Jones, I read Leaving Atlanta in a seminar course and I wanted to read more. Um, and then Shay Youngblood, Black Girl in Paris. So just really just trying to broaden our ideas of what is considered good literature, particularly when it comes to African-American literature and getting out of those anthologies that we, they kind of end at like 1985 (laughs) as if no more literature has been written after that point. And so that's where my work is. I really want to, you know, bring, bring us current and whatever current is, because it kind of changes every semester depending on which course I'm teaching. But yeah, that's, that's That's pretty much my focus. This is Sorry, so cool. Liz, that was a big digression. No, I, I um, find that I always enjoy when people start talking about what they're reading and what they're doing because it's always interesting. And I think I just end up getting a list that gets longer and longer of things I should read. 
And I'll be honest, you guys help me out sometimes. So when people ask me, oh, what are you reading? I don't really want to tell you that I'm reading Harry Potter or Fifty Shades of Grey or... I mean, I tend to, when I'm reading, I tend to go for... Um, I can finish it in a setting. It's it's like cheesy, means nothing, or it's like nostalgic because I've already read it. So... Uh, so, but sometimes I like to have something that's more heavy hitting, <laughs> more like intellectual. Um. Yeah, I think the thing that I found while doing the comp exams and all of that stuff is that sometimes you mm-hmm. need a break. Um, I am not ashamed to admit that I've read the Twilight series five times. Oh my, five. And every t- Five. And every time I've read it, it was in between doing something majorly academic. And it can was we talk when about I passed the comps. Yeah, you know, it's 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 perfectly fine. I am Twihard. No, can you un- can you help me understand Twihardness? I mean, I I I tried reading them. So tell me what the appeal of Twilight is. I think this is a very important, like the height of this whole. Con- well, not the height of the conversation. It's very just <laughs> if you could. Just help me understand Twilight. And I'd also add, like, you have to let us know if you're Team Jacob or Team Edward. I am absolutely (laughs) Team Edward. I have been from the beginning. Absolutely. I can't believe this. It was everything. It's cold. Um, Yes, it's. I'm sorry. Not sorry, but yes, I was definitely Team Edward. But I have to confess, (laughs) I was anti. The, the Twilight thing, because I was like, I don't know anything about Harry Potter. I'm not reading Harry Potter. I'm not getting into Harry Potter. Yeah. And now they have this Twilight thing. I'm not getting into that either. I didn't Do you know how happy Twilight. Zion is right now? Did you see her? <laughs> well, you're in agony, Liz. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I don't care. I really, I genuinely don't care. Um, because I didn't read Game of Thrones, so... Like, oh everyone has gosh. a book. I'm just saying, she's so happy to have someone who didn't read Harry Ooh. Potter as well. I I couldn't get into Harry Potter. I tried watching the movies. I tried reading. I have all of the books. I cannot get past the first one. But I was so into Twilight that I watched the first movie probably a year after it came out. Mm -hmm. And then I had to know what happened next. So then I got all of the books that had come out. So all of them were out at that point except the last Mm -hmm. one. I read them all. It was like three days. I read all three books in three days. And then I was at the midnight screenings <laughs> for the films <laughs> after Listen. that. And I was so sad. I Yes, I believe I got misty-eyed when the last oh one happened. Oh, my God. Listen, when A Thousand Years comes on at the end of the movie, the song, <laughs> I, yes. So I am not ashamed to admit that I thoroughly enjoyed Twilight. And it was because I didn't have to think very hard about it you, at you don't all. have to think very hard that is true um but so i'm not i'm coming more from i tried to read the books i couldn't really i think i read the first one and then i wikipedia the rest <laughs> and oh, i on. just so I, i'm i'm legit like i thought she was stupid i thought she the protagonist or the writer and maybe this means i like it if i have such strong opinions about it but how could you be Team Edward? <laughs> he was horrible. She had to change her actual Edward, being for him. Edward said, "You are my heir," and I he doesn't said, need oh heir. He is exactly. I'm about to start cursing on here. He is dead. 
like, listen, he glistens, he glitters, they don't need any sleep. You know how much I love sleep? He was These are the worst beautiful. vampires ever. And I love them. I, vampire Diaries, the originals, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, <laughs> Suki, um, True Blood. I read all I, of no, them. I hated True Blood. Okay. <laughs> hated it. Twilight, they're the worst vampires of all. Oh my God, there's so much feeling. I was I was in there. I'm sorry. I was there from the beginning, and Jacob was annoying, and I was so happy that he ended up imprinting on, on the baby because that would have been weird, and it just never felt right for me. Interesting. No, I'm actually. I'm very sorry. Happy I can't get in here. I wanted it. to actually. I really wanted to hear why, because I just it didn't make it didn't click for me. This is exciting, huh? But there were several people in, in either English department. I think I started this when I was at Ole Miss and probably finished it by the time I got to Alabama. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people in the English department were like, these are the worst books ever. And I'm like, are you kidding? They're just, they're so amazing. And it was because I would read them in between doing super mm-hmm. heavy academic things. And I was like, all right, I finished comps now. Let me read right. the next book. Yeah, and I guess so. to be fair... I also liked Fifty Shades of Grey, so that could be my Twilight. You know, I read Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, at some point, I think by the second, middle of the second book, I was like, okay, this is just... Fucked up? There's a lot happening here, and I had a pen circling <laughs> errors at that point. I was just like, okay. I read it all, though. And I think her I writing might have been the one that was really questionable. To be honest. So, like, it was absolutely annoying. It was. And then some of it was like, this sounds rapey. It, yeah, a little bit. It really does. <laughs> so, I think by the time Fifty Shades of Grey came out, I was having trouble turning off the critical eye, which I think I had the luxury of doing when I started the Twilight series. And now I can't mm. <laughs> read Fifty Shades of Grey, but like, this is borderline rapey. You know, it's that critical thing that go that you get when you've done so much scholarly reading yeah. and you've done you've written it's so all hard this to stuff turn that presented. off. Actually, just like the wokeness, yeah. it's really hard to like be woke yes. at breakfast. You know, like you can't even. <laughs> it's kind of hard to like to um, turn it off with your friends. Even. I'd say like there's this funny um, Onion article that I see friends repost every so often where it's like. Um, like local area feminists turns off feminism once every week to en- for half hour to enjoy TV show. <laughs> yeah. It would be great, you know, to be able to go and watch a movie or <laughs> to read a book and just not have that thing pop on. But I've come to grips that it's just not going to happen. I'm always thinking critically about things, even when I'm not supposed to be doing any kind of work. I just, I can't help it. So yeah. It's a thing that I, that's probably the reason why I turned like hip hop and music into the thing that I would study <sighs> because I found myself being super critical yes. of music all the time. Can we talk about this? Can we talk about being critical? Why, why you are critical of hip hop? And I'd also yeah. add that you should have come and visited us in Ithaca because we have the hip hop archive in at Cornell now. That's quite big, but anyway. That that is a thing that I okay. really want to do. <laughs> um, but you know, hip hop. Again, my favorite rapper is Jay Z. Mm. Favorite singer is Beyonce. I love all things Cardinals. Okay. Um, but 
in the movement where we are in this space we are now with like millennial activism and particularly with the things that I study wanting to be more current in the hip-hop literature or African-American literature and teaching things that affect us in the community um, I found a way to write about what I love which was hip-hop but then when I was doing that um, struggling with am I going to be a feminist am I going to call myself a feminist am I a hip-hop feminist trying mm-hmm. to figure out my space in between all of these mm-hmm. things I started to I guess unconsciously say okay this lyric here doesn't quite sound it doesn't it's he's saying he's doing all of these things and then going back you know I used to love Nelly but then being in a class mm-hmm. where you're having a discussion about all the problems with tip drill and and so I never yeah thought that there was a way to have these kinds of conversations in an academic context and so I took this class black feminist thought and that was the beginning of thinking about Mm hip-hop culture and the ways in which women are and so intersectionality of course you know multiple ways of being oppressed and then looking at you know what does hip-hop have to do with that is there a problem in hip-hop and so all of these questions were always kind of nagging at me and before I knew it I was reading lyrics instead of just listening to them and the more I read lyrics the more things I found that were problematic and then trying to figure out well what's the difference between rap and hip-hop and does hip hop have to have a social message all of or the time? Even, is what's there space? Rap, hip hop, and pop culture, pop music right now? Because so I love pop yeah. music. I mean, one, yeah, okay, I'll do this. I'll like rock to a little bit, but also pop music is pop culture, and ultimately, I think while music can reflect the generation, the generation also is a reflection of the music. And so, like, what is popular, mm-hmm. what gets done, and I think now. Um, this is also why Grammy nominations, things like that, piss me off because um, <laughs> Beyonce is still being put. Beyonce's pop. And I'm not saying she's not R&B or hip hop. What I am saying is she is popular culture. But they always put black artists in like urban or hip hop uh-huh. R&B when they are everything that your white teenagers are listening to. And that is the market for selling music. And so it's just really like analyzing pop culture, a pop music is a way of analyzing pop culture, analyzing like what's hot mm-hmm. today, what's up, what are we accepting, what are we not accepting, what's cool, what's not cool, because that's it. And right now, rappers are hot. Rappers are pop. And, and it's undeniable that not only is rap making his way into pop, but pop is absolutely made his way into rap. Because if, if, if you think whatever Drake is doing right now is rap, and I'm not, I have no, I'm not saying it's bad. Right? <laughs> she just I'm covered just her face. Being objective about what's happening. Uh, or Nikki, like, or any of these people. It's just that's not, yeah. that's, that's pop music. That's pop rap right now. But if you ask a Grammy, Pop if you rap. ask like some other person, they have not updated their ideas about what rappers are. Yeah, I'd say this also takes us back to Shay's <laughs> earlier observation about how the bookstore, yeah. there's this type of segregation between bestsellers, this blank, implicitly mm-hmm. white category versus this is the Af- African-American literature section, right? Yeah, the, the dilemma with Drake, <laughs> uh, I think one of the last, 
the last classes that we had this semester, because we're finished now, um, was, is Drake, in fact, a rapper? And I am not, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to say this. I am not a fan of Drake when he is not rapping. I do not like singing Drake at all. But I like singing like this. (laughs) I'm a little off. I mean, I get it. He's super catchy in all of these things, but... Um, for example, I think the Grammy nominations, he was nominated for Best Rap Song Collaboration for like Hotline Bling. And I remember somebody asking, at what point in this <laughs> song does he rap? And I, like, I would have accepted know. the nomination for the diss track on Meek Mill. Honestly, I was expecting that because that was actually <laughs> classic. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. I can't. That, that was funny. <laughs> Although I would like to go on the record of saying Meek Mill's a better rapper. Ooh. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we've I've had this debate like in my classes, really? and like everybody's kind of like divided with the the team. But have Drake they heard both team Meek. Um, discographies? Just, is that how you say that word? Yes. <laughs> Probably not. They just you know popular things, the the Twitter wars and the memes kind of sway but you know i think I, I he's even a better rapper than drake things. well chris brown is probably can we even say chris brown but i mean there are people who technically rap better than drake um but he's way more popular so i think that goes back to what you were saying about pop and its effect on hip-hop and then there's this idea well why doesn't it work for mm-hmm. everyone who goes the super pop route and maybe end up being one? So Shay, tell me, how do you discuss these issues in your classroom? Well, in my favorite course, because it's one I've created <laughs> over the course of maybe maybe about three okay, Dr. Dan. now, it's called, you know, Again, hip-hop and American social movements. Mm -hmm. It's my baby. And I started this when I did, like, themed writing in, like, an English 102 course. And so all the papers that semester were themed with, like, conscious Mm -hmm. hip-hop. And so it worked out so well that I said, okay, let me figure out a way to make this a two or Mm 300-level course. And so it's this idea of tracing conscious hip-hop from inception to whatever current is, so to 2016. And so in this course, we start with this question of what's the difference between hip hop Mm -hmm. and rap. And of course I have my ideas about like how I would define hip hop music versus rap. And, but I always like to know what my students think. And so they have all of these ideas of, well, rap sounds like this and hip hop is more of this sound. And then very, a few people usually come in and say, well, I think hip hop has a connection to the community. And so it's this idea of trying to figure out how do they think about music forms, particularly hip hop in terms of, you know, social, cultural, economic importance and like speaking to community Mm -hmm. issues. And so it's this idea that for my class and for how I think about hip hop in general, hip hop music always has some kind of social, political, message that it conveys Mm -hmm. throughout like anybody can rap um like I could probably rap now I would be very good at it um (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna give you a bar um but 
but anybody could rap, but then how do you become hip hop? Uh, the lyricism, the message, what are the stories that mm-hmm. you are telling? Like, wh- how are they helping um, your community or talking about the things that affect your community? And so that's kind of how we talk about uh, hip hop and what it's doing or not doing um, for community. So in this course, I trace the birth inception of hip hop and how it changes by tracing the social movements in America. So we kind of start with the onslaught of Mm -hmm. Reaganomics in the birth of hip hop. And then we look at, well, you know, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, the message, like they are talking about, here's what's happening in the projects while, you know, Reaganomics is booming in other places, you know, black people in the ghetto are really hurting and here's what that looks like. And we see it in the music. And then a couple more years down the road, we get to the straight out of Compton unit, which mm-hmm. police brutality becomes an issue. And so we kind of look at how does hip hop change according to what's going on in America mm-hmm. socially. And so it's been, oh, it's been so much fun, but it's really been an exercise in getting people and my students to really read lyrics and understand why public enemy is talking about fight the power. Like what are the powers? What is the power that be, you know, and how we're in like a cyclical space with these movements. Like we find ourselves kind of going back through the civil rights movement, black power movement, black Panther movement. Like what were those movements doing? And what were, what was the music? Right. And what did the music say about these movements during the time period? And so one of my students, was like, man, we're just, we're back in the civil rights movement again. And I was like, well, point me to, you know, mm-hmm. some music. And so then we find ourselves with just Siri X. Do we need to start a riot? And, you know, Killer Mike's Reagan. And, you know, this is 2012. And then, of course, Jay-Z is all throughout mm-hmm. this course. But it's, it just becomes a really cool way of talking about music but also talking about social issues on the backdrop yeah. of what's happening in America Man. And as then a whole. I'd be interested to see how you add the intersectionality in this. Like, where are the women in this whole movement? Um, and, yeah, I was just even thinking Absolutely. about 2016, the difference between Beyonce um, dancing in the Super Bowl with, cost- with Black Panther costumes versus Kendrick Lamar, you know, performing mm. and what happened like I think it was actually even more visceral like his his I forget black men in prison like it was like something way more Mm -hmm. police centric and Mm -hmm. he I didn't really hear him getting any slack I mean well and then then it's Beyonce like for some reason I don't know in which (laughs) lifetime but apparently Beyonce did something to people, yeah. and you either or love the CMAs. her or you hate her. And Last year, Justin Timberlake performed yeah. a classic. He performed Tennessee Whiskey with Chris Stapleton at this the actual CMAs. Nobody said anything. He is definitely very pop. Okay, same back. Actually, same same beginning. They were both in boy girl bands, and then they had their own personal careers. And then Beyonce does it, and all of a sudden, it's like I can't believe pop is taking over country music. We don't need it pop to make us more popular. Blah blah blah. I'm like, dude, do you, can you see that? Can you see that? Exactly. Not to mention their ratings skyrocketed for like the five minutes Beyonce was on there. So you know, like you're welcome, but. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And I was one of those people like, okay, y'all, you told us she was opening the show. Where <laughs> is Beyonce? It's like an hour and 15 minutes. Where is Beyonce? I think where is Beyonce was trending. And then as soon as it went off, I think I changed the channel just like mm-hmm. most of America yeah, I didn't see it. did. But um, th- And so this idea of where the women in hip hop, there is a section in this course of course, we talk about Queen Latifah's mm-hmm. UNITY and um, language. So the overarching theme of this class is like, one, what does good protest look like? And does language uh, affect the message of hip hop? Because again, hip hop receives so much backlash. Oh, it's violent. It's negative. Mm-hmm. It demeans women. You know, Trisha Rose's mm-hmm. Hip Hop Wars is one of the texts that I kind of include so what are we talking about when we're talking about hip-hop here are all of the things that are wrong with hip-hop and so you know talking about the women where are the women in hip-hop I mean Nicki Minaj is great but there are other women in hip-hop and historically there have been a lot of women in hip-hop and at some point those women disappear into the backdrop of wherever you know (laughs) they disappear I've noticed that men rappers end up having these coming of age stories and these like really expansive tales like J. Cole did that and Kendrick Lamar. And I'm really waiting for Nicki to put out an album that really reflects like the um, coming to age for a, a woman. Like, like what, what is mm-hmm. that like? Can we get, can we get like a little um, Tupac dear mama from Nicki? Can we get J. Cole's like, his last album, Forest Hills, like, when are we going to get some, like, autobiographic, not about her per se, but about, like, the black woman experience from a black woman rapper? You know what I mean? Like, to go along with all those classics that we talk about. Because right now, that classics title, for some reason, only belongs to the men right now. And Right. You know what? We throw that around so quickly. Like, J. Cole's dropping a new album tomorrow, which I will be front and center for. Absolutely, which I hate it came out after my <laughs> class ended because I would yeah. have stuck it right on the end, just like I did Jay-Z spiritual. Um, but man, I would be all about the coming of age of Odisha Mirage. And especially with Nikki, what I wanted to add is like, I thought it was really interesting of how her emergence had to come at the cost. Like there's this way that, remember she was feuding with Lil' Kim at the time? Mm. And that there's sort of oh, interesting yeah. controversy like of like, if there's going to be a black woman in hip hop, it seems like there's only space for one. And that seemed to be part of what the feud was, um, Mm -hmm. the feud was happening. And so of course you want to say like, there has to be space for both. But again, like it's sort of, it's really sad to see that. um, Whereas there's been this resurgence in like nineties hip hop. I feel like Lil' Kim has her sort of fallen by the wayside. If that, that seems Mm -hmm. correct. And especially, um, yeah, I was wondering if, uh, Shay, do you, yeah. how do you address like this, this question of like what happened to Lil Kim and I guess especially like her recent surgery and things like that? Yeah, you know we when we talked about it and I can't I think there's a unit in between like straight out of Compton like 99 problems. There's a, a space where we talk about who's allowed to participate in hip hop, which we talk about like Iggy, can we talk about that Azalea and Macklemore? I'm gonna write it down v- very briefly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and then there's the space because again, in this 
first early unit, we kind of talk about Queen Latifah and UNITY and feminism. You know, is there such thing as feminist rap and what does that look like? And when we talked about the the Nicki Minaj, uh, what what did my student call it? I think he was like the Nicki Minaj mm-hmm. dilemma um, on how she's not allowed to be authentically Nicki because she has to have borrowed or stolen mm-hmm. Lil' Kim's. And now Lil' Kim can't be successful because Nicki Minaj has somehow mm-hmm. kind of like stolen her identity. And so it led us to this discussion about what happens in hip hop or rap with um, these female rappers who are in fact trying to maintain the spot because there's only seemingly space for one, but also this issue with identity politics and what happened to Lil' Kim and why she feels the need to, you know, bleach her skin and why does she look like Mm -hmm. a completely different person now and what, you know, what does white privilege or whiteness or aspiring to this European standard of beauty have to do with the demise of Little Kim, mm-hmm. if it does at all? And so it ended up taking us into this conversation that had very little to do with, you know, her actual music. Because if we're talking about, you know, expressing sexuality, I mean, I mean, yeah. Little Kim is like legendary, yeah. you know, for being the voice of, you know, sexuality in female rap. Um, but some kind of way, her identity and these these issues that she's having with, you know, how she looks or how people look at her, um, does that affect her ability to even be the face of female rap? Or, or has that some kind of way tainted her ability to be a rapper because she has kind of gone through this transformative thing that happens that allows Nicki Minaj to kind of take over. So it was a very interesting Mm -hmm. debate that I'm not Mm -hmm. even sure we ended up with a clear answer on, but I just found it was really, really interesting um, how identity politics and Lil' Kim's career ended Mm -hmm. up being one and the same. And how does Iggy fit into this? Well, I guess the, well, sometimes I try not to come across as I hate (laughs) this person and I really do try to open the space. (laughs) <laughs> and let the students figure it out. Um, but the question I asked was like, who's allowed to participate? Because yeah. I mean, Eminem is a legend. Um, Eminem gets a pass into places where Iggy Azalea and Macklemore just didn't. Um, and we were trying to figure out, are we upset because Iggy Azalea is white and she's seemingly overnight become the face of hip hop for what one or two years and my students, they, they really did have some interesting ideas here, but they did bring up, like, she doesn't talk like that. Like, it's a black scent, and she's taking the parts from other rappers or female rappers who may not get that space or visibility or access because they aren't white. Right, she got, like, a top freshman list, the triple XL. She was listed as one of them. And also, she's not actually... A- Technically speaking, she's not a very good rapper, oh, and it's kind of clear when you listen to her, she's actually not that good. And that's not even like that's just about the skill set. And if you, you know, it's like she's missing beats. It's like she's trying to dance, and if you were dancing with her, she would be that person who can't like ever stay on beat with you <laughs> while you're trying to grind or something. Yeah, anyway. it's that technical ability. And then it was 
you know, bringing it back to that question of what is she saying? What is her message? What is her message to this audience? Yeah. And does that have a place in hip hop? Does Iggy Azalea speak to the issues that affect the hip hop community? And that's kind of the way that we kind of manage. Does she have a space in this place where we're going to say, well, this is a hip hop artist and this is just rap. Does she have value? Um, because we all agreed in the class that, you know, Fancy was a pretty catchy song. But it was also quite annoying that yeah. <laughs> she was able to prosper off of this song and become and assume this space when she can't even rap. When I okay, so I told you I bought yeah. the album, and before this track became huge over that summer, I remember I was listening to it and I was like, "Yeah, that's catchy, but that's annoying as hell." I mean, that was literally my thought when I first heard it. And um, uh, she really is poppy. And again, it's like the rap making its way into pop, pop into rap. And she, the other thing that really struck me was not only was she not using her accent, like you're Australian. Why don't you, why don't you try that? That's actually good for you, right? That's, if you're going, if we're going about and saying rap is about authenticity. So like Eminem could rap because he was at least talking about his experiences growing up in Detroit and things he encountered, let's say, or Macklemore's some level talking about himself. But Iggy wasn't even talking about herself. Like it was, it really did seem like she would say, I'm an entertainer. I'm here to entertain. And this mm -hmm. is my platform to do so. Mm -hmm. That was more the feeling I got from her that never made me feel quite. But I also felt guilty about trying to say that she can't rap because what are rappers doing right now, but infiltrating pop all the time, right? It's sort of like, I can't, I'm not sure if I can actually have it both ways. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can, it's actually totally cool for rappers to put out albums where they do nothing but sing or clearly crossing over. They don't care about my, they don't care about their pure fans. They want to get those other people. So why is it that these pop artists can't start rapping? Because you've now commodified the whole market. You've made this about, I'm going to get my money, and I don't care how I do it. And I feel like it's their fault. Like, we have Jay-Z and Kanye and, like, all the rappers to thank for this kind of meshing. I think, it's, I think you're exactly right. And it, that's how we try to separate what goes in which category in this course, like, are the, all of these songs that are just about materialism and maybe it's mumble rap, which I think is a thing that they're calling the rap that we can't really understand. <laughs> I just read an article the other day that says in this age of mumble rap. So if, okay. if it's not talking about these issues in the community of social, economic, political importance, storytelling, then we have to separate it into these categories. Not saying that there isn't a time when I don't want to listen to Dirty Sprite or I think we talked about, <laughs> like I also include Lil Boosie on this uh, syllabus as well. Is he from Mississippi? From Baton Rouge, close enough. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, and so I, I think what we decided was that all of these songs have a place but when we're thinking about how they contribute to our communities then we start trying to place certain songs or artists in these spaces. And then when we start questioning who's allowed to participate in these spaces, then if we use this rubric that we've kind of created 
as a this goes but this doesn't then we can move Iggy Azalea out of this space but can we do the same to Macklemore with this same love song and so it, it gets very murky um or his white privilege song yeah the, the white privilege song white privilege comes up a lot when we're talking about hip-hop <laughs> in this course actually Shay, you also mentioned ta- uh, teaching Beyonce, and of course, a lot of these and all these car- uh, people you're talking about have such intense fandoms. As wanting, when you come into the classroom space to get people to talk critically, like, do you find there are the particular assumptions that they bring in about the things that they love or about popular culture that you have to work to dismantle? How do you work with people's like pre-existing relationships to such popular objects and help them to think critically? That's a great question. Yeah. So, particularly with Beyonce, again, it's just either people come in absolutely I love her she's the best thing ever or I can't stand her and it's like what did she do to you (laughs) and so um particularly where Beyonce is concerned I I taught her um as a team teach with one of my colleagues in a course women on display and so we wanted to really talk about um representations of uh, the black female body and how it comes across in literature, film, popular culture. And so mm-hmm. we started this class by talking about like mm-hmm. Harriet Jacobs. We talked about the immortal life of Harriet Lacks. And mm-hmm. we talked about, again, Sister Soldier and her character Winter and like what happens when women have agency over their body and their sexuality and how they decide how that's going to go. And, you know, getting into... Um, some hip-hop feminism and you know what does feminism look like and I think we we started that discussion with Beyonce's self-titled album where she's mm-hmm. like overtly sexually unapologetically like I'm a woman I'm a feminist mm-hmm. but I'm also sexy and I have this husband and I can do these things because I'm a grown woman and you can't tell me what I get to sing about or how I look or how I dress and you know, just really having these conversations. And so sometimes students would come in with these ideas of she's just too sexy. She's a mom now. She should do this and she should do that. Mm -hmm. But we also discussed like Rihanna. Um, And Mm -hmm. one of the interesting conversations that we had was sometimes Rihanna gets a pass Mm -hmm. in ways that Beyonce doesn't to do things. Not that one should be able to do something and the other one shouldn't, but it's just how we discuss Mm -hmm. those particular women and how they display sexuality or the things that they do um, and how she gets a Beyonce is like mommy shame. But then we also talked about Kim Kardashian and Mm -hmm. Amber Rose and black Mm -hmm. China and like overt displays of sexual agency and freedom and how even in the entertainment industry, all women even if they are women of color, still don't operate in these spaces. They don't navigate these spaces in the same way and what that criticism looks like when their bodies are on display. And so students really had to think critically about why are you allowing, you know, Rihanna this space to do these things, but you're not willing. Can you give an example? Um, particularly, so one of the examples that we um, talked about was uh, I can't remember which award, so, but it was in a performance where Beyonce performs like Drunken Love and she's sitting in the chair and she has on the leotard, which I think maybe mm-hmm. have been like a thong or something, but she had on like all of these tights or something. But at the same award show, like Pink was spinning around um, 
during her acrobatics and she had on a leotard but she didn't have on all these tights but some kind of way Beyonce was the less dressed one and there was all this Mm -hmm. backlash about how dare she get up there are kids watching Um, and only she got the backlash for how she was dressed and then the Mm -hmm. GQ magazine where you know she had just had the baby and she was about Mm -hmm. to perform and Beyonce's you know out looking as Beyonce does which is great Um, but then Mm -hmm. Rihanna did the cover where she had on a jacket (laughs) that was it and so we were talking about the ways in which these women are sexualized but they're sexualized so Mm -hmm. differently and we can't figure out why Beyonce is the one that takes the heat in all of these spaces or what is the difference between Amber Rose and Kim Mm -hmm. Kardashian and, and how they display their sexuality so um, students really had to kind of work through those implicit biases and like question, do I just not like this person or is there a real difference mm-hmm. in how we're expecting women to act um, when they're entertainers and they're on the stage and what are we projecting mm-hmm. on their body? I think that Liz and I know a certain undergrad that would have benefited from taking your class quite a bit. Sorry, Liz, you remember? You know who I'm talking about. You know who I'm talking about. I definitely dealt with some student frustrations. Um, You know, I've had students come in saying they hate Beyonce and they hate Jay-Z and Jay-Z can't rap. And then I just have to take a few seconds to kind of gather myself. But Mm -hmm. that also makes for very, very engaged discussion, um, Mm -hmm. which is a vital part of any part of teaching. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the subject matter makes it a lot easier to have these discussions. But at some point we, we agree to disagree because um, right. I still had a, a student who left my class who still said that Lil Wayne was the best rapper alive. And we just had to agree to disagree on that because we argued about it all semester. Now, um, I will admit, Jay-Z, I don't, I'm ambivalent. I'm neutral on Jay-Z. It's okay. I fully, was. I was very late to the Jay-Z party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being from the South, Mississippi, I thought I was a no-limit soldier up until... <sighs> You know, clear up until I got to college. uh, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've discovered that, you know, doing all this research, I discover new Jay-Z all the time. And so the earlier Mm. stuff tends to make its way into the course. But what I've discovered is more and more that he super misogynist in the beginning of his career and he do you is, think like once he got with Jake with Beyonce he was like because that was, I absolutely. felt like he just stopped saying a lot of stuff absolutely um and that's actually one of the things that I wanted to um probably add to the next time that I teach this course um because Jay-Z I don't want to just put Jay-Z and say Jay-Z's a feminist but a lot of his material has shifted you know the videos you don't see the girls in the videos anymore mm-hmm. and I would attribute that to my third cousin in my head um <laughs> Beyonce yes um but yes. the ways in which hip-hop changes which goes back to you know what are we asking hip-hop to do what responsibility does it have to um education um protest social movements what is hip-hop doing now I, I think we can say you know, Jay-Z is coming back, especially with his last song, Spiritual, you know, way more socially concerned, way more, like, concerned about, you know, women and, you know, how they're treated. You know, your wife's mm-hmm. out here being super feminist. <laughs> I mean, his language has changed. And so one of the questions we kind of ended with, you know, 
are we expecting too much from hip hop or does hip hop need to live up to, you know, doing something that's going to contribute Mm -hmm. to the larger um, issues? 2009, Death of Autotune. Like, I think the 2000s was the worst time for, like, rap, hip-hop, even R&B. It just felt like a desert of, like, creativity and, like, EDM was really hot. Like, ugh. And then he just came out with Death of Autotune. And I feel bad because T-Pain was actually really good, but it felt like he killed his career. And everybody, he was, like, a giant, basically, Jay-Z put out a song like, hey, all you dudes out there are on Mm -hmm. autotune. Stop it. It's horrible. And And it's sort of like if if Jay-Z were to walk into a room like, you know what? Blue is not a good color anymore. Everybody should wear green. And everybody literally took off all their shirts (laughs) and put on green. That was what happened to the whole music industry in 2009 with the song Death of Autotune. You know, and I have to be honest. It's probably the reason why I hate 808s and Heartbreak, Kanye. Really? I hate autotune. And I really was a fan of T-Pain. But I love Death of Auto Tune so much because it was supremely petty, <laughs> but it was it was very timely, and everybody in the industry was doing the auto tune, and it just it was done became, too much. It really it was, was so much. Uh, I really appreciate Jay Z for Death of Auto Tune. I was wondering uh, to change topics a little bit. Um, a question for both of you, since of course you you both come from uh, you used to be schoolmates way back in the day. Uh, to talk a little bit about your relationship to the South, but also what it's like to be an academic from the South. And like, Shay, I know that uh, you've managed to to stay in the South for most of your career. And for Liz, like um, she had to go to Penn and then to to Cornell. But then afterwards, I knew that you had to felt such a strong uh, sense of relief to be able to go back to the South. Um, Like what, yeah, just talk about what does the geography of that also mean for your intellectual and like personal emotional lives? Shay, I'll let you answer first. Uh, well, um, yes, I've spent all of my academic time in the South, and being from Mississippi, um, it was a bit of a culture shock coming to the Mississippi Delta because I've never seen cotton mm. growing before. Oh, really? And so, okay. no, never. And that's weird when I, I'm from Mississippi. And so in August, you know, started a new institution on the way here, the geography, I had a culture shock because I was like, what is that white? That is cotton. Mm. And so I had to video and I really had to kind of confront you know, the, the urban landscape, yeah. you know, this is the South, this is the cotton that is growing. And I remember seeing a picture on Facebook and I don't remember who posted it. Um, but there were a lot of comments about, look how beautiful this cotton field is at sunset. And mm-hmm. it's just a beautiful, and I was like, I can hear the tears of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. This is triggering. Yeah. And it brought all of these feelings back because as long, even though I've been in the South, I've never had to pass by cotton fields every single day and actually passing by a plantation every single day. Like that was something different. So I think this is the first time that I've been like, I need to get out of the South. Um, What is it like to live (laughs) in a blue state? (laughs) What is that life like? (laughs) Especially post-election, which again, I try not to go there. But yeah, just really being confronted with, you know, I I do a lot of 
work with like race, class and gender and talking about literature that, you know, represents what's happening outside. But now I'm actually having to confront like I'm passing by cotton fields and plantations on the way to work every single day. And Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. So I grew up in before I moved to Crystal Springs in sixth grade, I actually lived in Tunic. I lived in the Delta. So Mm. the cotton fields are not quite new to me, but I do have the same experience you have with them that they make, I feel like the ancestors are crying. They make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I always have these double takes. I actually went back over Thanksgiving. It's like, oh, wow, that's still here. Or actually the harvest just happened. So the the field of all white or white brown is now just brown Mm -hmm. because the harvest just happened. And that is a very weird, surreal experience. Um, I'll, one time in high school, I was doing an internship at State, and State has some cotton fields around it. Mm-hmm. They have the plantations. And I happened to be working at an energy lab that was next door to the cotton plantation. Wow. And as I was getting back on the bus, um, everyone on the bus started making fun of me for working next to the cotton field. Oh and they, were, they said, like, Hey, Liz, are you out there picking cotton? And, like, they just kind of went one by one with their cotton jokes. And um, none of them were black. And I don't think they – maybe I'm trying to sympathize them, but it really affected me that they were all making jokes about me picking cotton. Um, And they – and then, for whatever reason, not understanding how that might impact me. Mm-hmm. as a person who, you know, was given this great educational opportunity who, like, in a different lifetime, you know, even my parents' lifetime even, I would not be being able to do research. I would probably be picking something mm-hmm. somewhere. But I have to say yes. that I've recently been trying to get back to the South or revisit it because for all its problems, it feels like home. When mm-hmm. I go to different places, everything is new and... It's a different culture, and different cultures are, I'm adaptable. I think of myself as a chameleon, but it's still different. And there aren't a lot of black people, which means there are not a lot of black products. And so I like going back to the South because it's like, hey, I ain't get my hair done. I can go, I can find an Ebony magazine with ease because they will actually sell them because somebody might buy them. Um, I, I have pro- Tyler Perry's problematic, but I know I can find somebody with a Tyler Perry DVD, and it's like a little heartwarming a little bit. And then even the white people have more interactions with black people, and that's comforting in a way. It's like, okay, at least you guys are familiar, so you're not completely treating me a little bit like differently. So I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I know like it's been helpful for me and my soul to somehow not feel like I'm the only person in the whole city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sorry. But I'm so glad that we, I hope we stay in touch. And um, yes, absolutely. I just, I just think it's really powerful that we came from Crystal Springs, you know, this town of 5,000 people in the in Mississippi and somehow made our way to have PhDs. Yeah, it's still surreal. I'm sometimes I find myself wondering, like, did I really just 
I really do it? You really did it. Are they really talking to me? Um, Do I really know the things? (laughs) Do I know all the things? Um, I I, I guess it's still Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. How long has it been, though? um, December 12th will make one year since I've been hooded. So So I definitely... Almost. (laughs) I definitely think the first year is a lot about adjustment. Absolutely. I would I would give yourself some time, because I found I found that the way I've thought about things have changed, and some of that's been healing. Some of that's been leaving the space of trauma for me. <laughs> trauma, that's a really good and, word. <laughs> and then as a, the trauma kind of ebbs away, I'm more able to see clearly what my accomplishment was and kind of accept mm-hmm. that and then grow into the new phase. And I think um, some of that can be imposter syndrome, absolutely. But I also think that just hearing from other people, too, we went through something. And anytime you go through something, there's always that phase of adjustment and shock and, like, getting adapted to it. But you do accept it and you do, like, feel like it feels normal after a minute. But, I mean, the other thing is your identity for the last X years Five, I don't know how long you were in grad school, but if your identity for a substantial amount of your life has been as a student, then it's obviously going to mm-hmm. be a transition to no longer be a student, right? To be the authority on something. No longer training to be the authority, but actually being that, that thing. And I think it's a powerful thing once you own it. Like once you're ready to accept that crown, so to speak, because there's so much that you can do for people in the world. When I had my McNair interview, one of the things I said was, one of the things I learned from McNair is that a PhD is about being a scholar and having a voice in the world. And that was why I wanted my PhD, because I wanted to be able to have a platform and say, this is what I'm an expert in. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I want to help, you know, the science community, my community, by visibility. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. My my way of making a difference is one day at a time, one classroom at a mm-hmm. time, one book <laughs> at a time, or one song <laughs> at a time. Yeah. Um, so hopefully one day this will have made a difference and nobody will look at me crazy when I say I teach <laughs> hip-hop and literature and Sister Soldier and Lil Boosie and we have a great time. Well, unless our screens freeze, I can guarantee you that in this moment, we are not looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. So tell us what's next for you. What's next? Okay. Okay. So I, you know, I am looking to do more research with, um, yeah, just like hip hop literature and hip hop feminist literature. What? Where is the literature of hip hop feminists? What would that look like if we were to pick up a novel and said, here's the literature that talks about like body agency and um, expressing sexuality. So, you know, just looking to do more work with that. Of course, um, I want to continue the Sister Soldier series into Prison Lit and doing more work with the Midnight characters because I just really like how she talks about community issues and she puts them into characters that are relatable um, for people because, again, everyone didn't go to college. Um, 
most people I know didn't read these books in a classroom. They picked them up because they were interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was something about those texts that spoke to them um, beyond um, this academic space and I'm putting them in. So I just want to connect more with that. And I want to do more hip hop music, you know, research. Um, I'm really interested in, mm-hmm. you know, Trisha mm-hmm. Rose's um, <laughs> um, battle with, you know, the thing, the problems with hip hop or what we're talking about when we're saying here are the problems with hip hop. And particularly in this space of millennial activism and this responsibility that we see hip hop is taking a more um, central role and becoming more active. Um, what does that look like? Are we asking for them to do more and if your favorite rapper isn't talking about these things should they be your favorite rapper Mm -hmm. so that was kind of one of those questions that we kind of left open-ended at the end of the semester and so those are the projects that I'm kind of working on and you know just trying to I would totally (laughs) like for you to take my class I would like for anyone to actually take my class on this you should publish a syllabus um, it's easy a thing now right like you know what? I'm reading through the lemonade syllabus. Oh, awesome. That thing was awesome. I printed it out in color and had it bound, and it is on oh, my wow. bookshelf in the office. Oh yeah, super serious. Um, yeah, I think hip hop, constant hip hop syllabus would be a thing to do. Doctor Dent, this is an amazing interview. I know that we're probably gonna we'll cut some of this. This is amazing. Thank you so much for the time. Um, I really appreciated finally being able to talk to you. <laughs> All right, and thank you guys so much for asking me to come on. <laughs> Super well, thank you so much. It, I'm so glad I did. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. Yeah, and if possible, I do hope we can follow up on Zion's suggestion about going to Cornell. Maybe there's some people we can connect her with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have to check it out. I've pulled out my phone to make a note in my <laughs> well, note function.